Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Intellectual History, hosted by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews. This week I'm delighted to be speaking with Kelsey Jackson-Williams. Hello Kelsey. Hello Robin, it's a pleasure to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Right, so I'm a lecturer in early modern literature at the University of Stirling. Uh, my background is in Oxford. I did my postgraduate work there, uh, taught there briefly before moving on to St Andrews, in fact, where I had a British Academy postdoc. And it was during that British Academy postdoc that I began working on and developing the project, which has now become the first Scottish Enlightenment. Before then, you published your first book was on John Aubrey. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was, yes. Uh, so my first book, which was out in 2016 with OUP, was a study of John Aubrey's historical and antiquarian scholarship. Aubrey, if you're familiar with him, you're probably familiar with him for his brief lives, his lovely and lively biographies of his contemporaries in the latter part of the 17th century. But I was also curious in situating those lives within his larger antiquarian projects and trying to understand how he thought about the past more generally. Fantastic. So as you mentioned, uh, your interest in the history, uh, the history of scholarship has led you on to publishing the first Scottish Enlightenment, Rebels, Priests and History, published with OUP in, I think, March 14th of March 2020, so a week yes, before lockdown. Yes, uh, well timed. Timed publication date for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, it got me through. Uh, it got me through April. Um, it's a fantastic book. A really, really um, thorough and rich work that I hope all, well, not just um, people interested in early modern Scottish intellectual cultural history will read, but also people in, who are interested in the history of scholarship uh, more generally. It's a fantastic book. But I'll let you summarise it. Yeah, what is what is it about? Uh, what contribution do you see the book making? Well, first off, thank you. That's very kind. And I hope the book manages to live up to that for other people. Uh, so, in effect, it, it evolved in a slightly unexpected way, if I can actually sort of go back a little bit to what prompted me to write it and how it came about. When I began the research for this project, I imagined that I was writing a study of antiquarianism, broadly conceived in Scotland, between about the early 17th and the early 18th centuries. And in the process of that, I came to realize that there were some major fault lines in the way scholarship was conducted, which started in the 1680s and by maybe the 1720s or 1730s had resulted in a complete change in the scholarly process and the scholarly product in Scotland, at least in historical studies. And so instead of writing the book I first thought I wanted to write, I wanted to write something about that change. And that effectively is the story of this book, how intellectual culture in Scotland, specifically how historical scholarship in Scotland is profoundly transformed over this 50 year period in what I've somewhat provocatively called a first Scottish Enlightenment. And we can maybe talk later about what that might or might not entail. Fantastic. Um, so just to sort of set the background a little bit and maybe do some very, very broad brush uh, contextualization, there seem to be three, well, you tell me if you think there are further, but three contexts that really stand out. One is the specific religious and cultural institute context of northern Scotland, right? This is a, a story more about northern Scotland than it is about southern Scotland. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. But then also the immediate political contexts of the reign of James the Seventh, then 1688-89, and then the Union. I'm apologising for having to ask you to do this, but can you really crunch that down and explain the significance of those events for your story? And yep. then maybe also, finally, um, the larger context of wider European antiquarianism, the participation of Scots in a in a far larger 
uh, intellectual tradition. So yes, please go ahead. Absolutely. All right. So to take those one at a time, it is, you're quite right in saying that it is very much a story about northern and northeastern Scotland more than it is about southern Scotland. And again, this is one of those things that I didn't start out imagining would be crucial. But I came to realize that again and again, the people I was working on were actually from a fairly specific cultural area, that area that is really the sort of the lowland basin of Aberdeenshire and the small counties surrounding it with some uh, outliers into Fife and Perthshire. Now, there's a reason for this, which is that northeastern Scotland for a long time was culturally distinct in a way that contemporaries recognized from the rest of Scotland and certainly from that part of Scotland which abutted England, the part of Scotland south of the Firth of Forth and Clyde. That started, I've suggested, with things like the foundation of King's College Aberdeen in 1495, and with the gradual development, especially after the Reformation, of both a slightly different religious context, one which was somewhat more tolerant of Catholicism, and much more strongly Episcopalian than much of the rest of Scotland, and also a different scholarly context, where the University at Aberdeen resulted in homegrown intellectual elite, but that this was also a, a larger sphere which was much more closely in tune with the continent, both mercantilely with northern Europe, but then intellectually with France particularly, in a way that was distinctive from the rest of the country. So I think that hopefully is very brief précis of the first point. Your second point about the immediate political context of the 1680s, this is something that I think has been vaguely known of for a while. Hugh Alston in the 1980s wrote a, I think, fairly well-known and very influential piece on the cultural patronage of James VII and II, World Duke of York in Edinburgh. And to some extent, I've followed Alston's lead and developed it a little bit further to suggest that actually the patronage of the Duke of York was part of a much larger and I think possibly much more self-aware plan, which he subsequently developed as king for refashioning Edinburgh intellectual culture, well, not in his image exactly, but for his purposes, to attempt to create something much more Catholic, much more in the lines of the sort of absolutist intellectual institutions we might see, say, in contemporary France. And even though 1688-89 saw the complete downfall of his political interests, those frameworks of scholarship, frameworks of intellectual sociability he'd created remained, and I've argued had a very significant impact on what came afterwards. And then finally, just to briefly touch on the relationship with wider European antiquarianism, uh, a point I've tried to make throughout the book is the extent to which Scotland and Scottish scholars are continually in dialogue, whether personal or epistolary or simply through their writing with scholars on the continent and especially scholars in France and perhaps secondarily in the Low Countries and in Italy. And that it's that engagement with a pan-European Republic of Letters dialogue which really makes the scholarship of this period distinctive but which also sees it participating in these larger trends of early enlightenment Pyrrhonism, early enlightenment attendance to the materiality of text, to the nature of sources, to the nature of historical truth. Fantastic. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, one of the things that comes across, I mean, in one, on one of your blurbs, I'm going to steal your language here, possibly. Uh, in one of the blurbs of the book, you talk about how uh, the 
Scottish Enlightenment you're talking about, the cultural context, is rural, not urban. It's aristocratic, not middle ranking. It's in northeastern Scotland rather than in Edinburgh and in Glasgow. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about, or go into further detail, about the uh, rural and aristocratic elements? Yes. One of the, I think we often are primed, whether we want to or not, to think in terms of centre-periphery. And for us, the centre is usually a city and the periphery is the provinces, however you define it. It's a very natural thing to do. There are lots of reasons why we do this in this project, just how poorly that model fit this. Now, that's not to say that Aberdeen and indeed Edinburgh didn't have an immense role as these major centers of population, of publishing, etc. But it was much less of a role than I'd anticipated. It emerged increasingly that the individuals involved lived a very decentralized life, which was actually instead focused on different aristocratic sites within this larger context. These tower houses and country houses, which were centers of patronage, centers of the reception, but also the production of scholarship, of art, etc. And I'd identified several of these as being key, the home of the Dukes of Gordon at Bagagait, of the Earls of Panmer down on the Angus coast, and of the Counts Leslie at Fetternear House. But you could easily multiply these uh, to show, I think, a much more, again, decentralized rural population of a fairly long-standing local aristocracy participating at a surprisingly high level in these uh, cultural currents. Yeah, it's a very different picture. So just one of the books that I was reading at the same time I was reading yours was Murray Pittock's um, Enlightenment in a Smart City, which is sort of a history of Enlightenment Edinburgh, late 17th century, early 18th century, which strongly argues for the the urban nature of the Scottish Enlightenment. It's all about urban improvement. And this and the, um, the story you're telling is a very, very different, uh, a very, very different one. Um, and we'll come back later to whether they whether they're running they're interacting with each other whether they're entirely separate we'll come back to that towards the end of our of our conversation but we've set the context a little bit um we need to talk now about what's being overturned what's the old stuff being got rid of so could you tell us a little bit about what uh, so specifically about approaches to studying the past right and historical writing um what is the old humanist approach uh to the past absolutely i actually like to start this with the distinction between humanist history is a branch of rhetoric and the sort of antiquarian practice that we might now recognize as historical. Because something I'm certainly not saying is that there was none of the sort of manuscript or artifact-centered antiquarian activity going on in Scotland before this period. There absolutely was. And actually, we can see it really very early in the history of Scotland, especially the history of the Northeast. But the dominant paradigm for understanding Scottish history with a capital S and a capital H up until the beginning of the 18th century were the humanist or quasi-humanist histories written in the 16th century by people like Hector Boyce, John Mayer, and George Buchanan. And these all shared in common a larger narrative which saw a Scottish kingdom being founded in 330 BCE by Fergus MacFurker, the first king, and then a series of a hundred odd monarchs going an unbroken line up to the Stuarts. And it's that myth of what I've called for shorthand the ancient monarchy that is paradigmatic to a, a surprising extent to Scottish identity in this period, but is also what becomes challenged during the period I'm studying. 
Can we also talk a little bit about the kind of um, the way uh, such histories are put together, how they're written, what their relationship is uh, to sources and that sort of thing? So they're written in the form of a more or less continuous narrative, chronological and loosely organized by monarchical reign. There's an emphasis, especially in these texts like Boyce and Buchanan on good style, so a good Latin style, something that makes it suitable and polite, as it were, for a larger European audience. In sources where they're treated are treated very impressionistically. Boyce does make a small parade of his sources, these are vaguely described as manuscripts from Iona. He names a couple of individuals. Their reality has been discussed extensively in the subsequent 500 years. But effectively, this is history as narrative. It's not history where the sources are transparent, but rather it's a story which has been woven more or less accurately out of whatever the author had at hand. The bulk of the book is about how your northern Scottish scholars, historians and antiquarians um, overturn this uh, mytholo mythological approach, approach to studying the past and really tra transform um, historical understanding. Um, can we talk about some of the ways in which this happens, the various sort of sub-disciplines in which uh, history is transformed? We could go by yeah. chapter by chapter, if you like. I mean, each one of them is fantastic. So... Pick whichever is your favourite if you want to start there. Well, I'll just I'll just start with a sort of a kind of quick list of the areas that I think saw the most transformation, and then we can go into maybe one or two in more detail. Aside from the larger engagement with the ancient monarchy myth, which in practical terms means an engagement with the whole received history of Scotland as a nation, you also see really substantial changes in treatment of archaeology and material culture in the way the archive, the medieval or the early modern archive is used as a source for writing history at all levels, uh, in the nature of writing national or local geography or choreography, if we want to think in Renaissance terms, in the construction of genealogies and the purposes for which they're used, and something which was of particular interest to me coming from a literary background in the development of a kind of shared literary heritage or a literary canon. So I think these are really the things where I saw these changes at work in most detail. And I mean, is there anything particular you'd like to address there? I'll start with the literary canon. Well, the literary canon. So the literary canon is fascinating because canon building activities in Scotland pretty much are coexistent with Scottish Renaissance culture. Uh, you can see this going back to the late 16th, early 17th centuries. But canon building entered a bit of a new key in this period. Scottish, so Scottish Historia Literaria, or sort of histories of literature, histories of writers, have traditionally been closely tied up with the lives of saints and the lives of churchmen, because there's this natural overlap there, but have also been mired or enlivened, depending on how you want to look at it, by a debate, a several centuries long debate between Scotland and Ireland about what Scotia means in Latin text of the early medieval period. And we know with the benefit of hindsight that up until about the 10th or 11th century, Scotia means Ireland. It doesn't mean Scotland. And Scotus means an Irishman, not a Scotsman. But this was much less clear in the early modern period. And what it meant in turn was that the Scots claimed quite a lot of Irishmen as intellectual ancestors. The Irish 
disagreed with this, as you can imagine. And mm. that controversy, the Skodik controversy, then really informed and caused the production of most forms of Scottish literary canon, which usually were designed to hoover up these figures and present them in a synthetic narrative of Scottish intellectual history until the end of the 18th century. Uh, what I found fascinating was the extent to which in the early 18th century, we see a shift towards a growing canon of early modern rather than medieval figures and to presenting that canon in the form of editions and editions of texts which were primed to give the reader a sense of the canonicity, uh, canonicity of their writers. So at the beginning of the 18th century, Robert Freebairn and Thomas Ruddiman embark on a series of publications of works by people like Arthur Johnson, George B. Cannon, Florence Wilson, uh, these humanist or immediately post-humanist Scottish writers designed to canonize these figures to present them on a level with classical text in terms of the apparatus presented and to effectively forge a Scottish literary history which supported their particular viewpoints, i.e. Jacobite and Episcopal and very Northeastern traditionalist. So that's uh, a great, a, to a great extent what I talk about then in the book is about how that comes about and what the impact of that is on the Scottish culture of the period. What's, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the, thing, one of the things you're stressing there is um, the growing sophistication of this research, right, of, of this uh, literary endeavour. It's sort of uh, deeply intertextual. It's on a far greater level of complexity than previous um, previous uh, work, and that that's sort of characteristic of the movement you're talking about in general. That there's more, um, yeah, it's a greater degree of sophistication. Could you unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. I think that shows itself in two ways. <clears throat> in one way, it's in terms of these scholarly editions or classicizing editions I've talked about. In another way, it's in terms of how bibliographies or lives of the writers within the Scottish canon are presented. In the early 17th century, they're often sort of quite stark bibliographies with minimal, predictably undocumented material about lives and more or less unreliable line-by-line uh, -line listing of works. By the 18th century, you get texts like George Mackenzie's Lives and Characters of the Scottish Nation, which is so far in the other direction that it remained unfinished at Mackenzie's death. Mackenzie's goal, which I think is very exemplary of this movement as a whole, was to set Scottish writers from the earliest period up until the 17th century within a larger European context and to treat them as facets of the European history of ideas. And in the course then of the biographies of which the lives and characters consists, this led him to have what he terms as digressions, but which in many ways are actually very essential to the work, digressions on pretty much everything from the nature of biblical criticism to <laughs> controversies over historical truth to the understanding of volcanoes to a huge variety of other things which exercised the early modern mind. And his idea then was that by explaining these things, he could make evident to a public which might not necessarily have the incredibly dense intertextual Baroque learning of a scholar of the Republic of Letters to explain to them how Scotland and Scottish writers fit within that larger story. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, look at similar themes with the uh, genre of genealogy. Could you explain why genealogy mattered? Yes. <laughs> to, to but then also the transformation, sorry to interrupt, yeah, but no, also the transformation of um, 
again, I, I'm trying, is, is this a common theme in the chapters that what we're looking at is historical scholarship moving towards something far more sophisticated, far more empirical, can we say that? Far more, uh, ever, you know, um, source-based, properly referenced, all those sorts of things. Is that happening in uh, genealogy as well? Yes, it absolutely is. Uh, and I start off the genealogy chapter by indeed talking about how a writer in 1716 can viciously criticize a writer from 1692 for effectively writing in what is now an outdated fashion, I one that doesn't involve source criticism, that doesn't require detailed attention to text. And there's a tremendous change there from genealogy as a form of exemplary narrative, whose primary purpose is social and familial to present good and bad examples to be a, to be followed or avoided in the family to hold together an extended family with a real or fictive notion of kinship towards something that is in a way less immediately useful sometimes but also much more scholarly which is based on the study of documents from archives or from the material remains of the family but I think the, the, the point you make about uh, empiricism is an interesting one. On some level it is, but I'm also very hesitant to cast that as the overarching narrative, because I think as with all pieces, all histories of scholarship, it's far too easy to say that we see here a shift from people being a bit foolish to thinking more like we do. And that's something <laughs> avoid, partly because it would be much too easy to do so. To So much of the scholarship that I talk about in the book underpins effectively modern 20th and 21st century understandings of pre-modern Scottish history, whether we know it, whether we are aware of it or not. But I've tried to move away from suggesting these are our intellectual predecessors, because I think there are also some very significant reasons why the story is a bit more complicated than that. Mm. I suppose, so I should modify the question I was going to follow up with. If we move this over into um, how the humanist myth of Scotland's ancient monarchy is replaced by something I was going to say more modern, more empirical, but you, you uh, qualify that in a second. If we were to look at an example of, uh, was it Thomas Innes's, is that you pronounce his surname? Innes, yes. like that? Critical essay on the ancient inhabitants of the northern parts of Britain, 1729, um, which you sort of use as an exemplary text of the changes in historical writing and thinking that you're talking about. Could you tell us about Innes's book and um, what is knew what is enlightened about it, shall we say. If empiricism and modernity are the wrong phrases, you, you replace them with something more appropriate, please. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Innes is, the critical essay is exemplary and it's, I think it is completely paradigmatic and perhaps the key text to much of what my book discusses. Uh, it is neither the first nor the last intervention in the ancient monarchy debate, but it's by far the most influential and lasting. In it, he surveys the history of Scotland before about the 11th century from several different angles, deconstructs the humanist text, explains the, the errors or the sort of manifest deviations from what we can learn from the historical record in them, and then rebuilds Scottish history using uh, previously neglected manuscript evidence, particularly the Poppleton manuscript, uh, which was in the Royal Library in France, now it's in the Bibliothèque Nationale, which is still regarded as one of the central texts for how we understand pre-11th century Scotland. And the reason why I'm hesitant to suggest Innes as a modern before the letter is that he does this, and he does it in ways we recognize as excellent scholarship, but he does it for very different purposes than we would. 
And we know this because he sends a letter uh, under along with uh, a copy of his book to James the Eighth and Third, the old pretender, the Jacobite claimant to the throne then in Italy, and says, obviously, I have not phrased it as such because that wouldn't do your cause any good, but the whole purpose of this book is to jettison these humanist narratives which are no longer serving the Jacobite cause and replace them with a new scholarly one which will make it very clear that you're the rightful claimant to the throne. So he's both tantalizingly modern and yet he's interested in a very specific, for a very specific political and religious reason and what is I think a very early modern way in why he's doing what he's doing. I suppose that the theme of Jacobitism there is another way, another uh, aspect of your account of this Scottish Enlightenment that is very different to the mainstream account. Can you um, interweave Jacobitism into some of the themes we've been talking about so far? What's are the? I sometimes got the impression that the people that you're writing about have been pushed out of a position of. Um, cultural and intellectual importance, and they're now outsiders, and they're fighting back. Um, it's that that's too glib or too simplistic. But can you? What's the what's the role of Jacobitism here, please? I think you're right, though, that that is broadly what's happening. That after the revolution of 1688, a lot of people who had very central positions in the intellectual and political and theological establishments of pre-1688 Scotland found themselves out in the cold. And one of the few ways they had to respond to that was through writing, through scholarship or through polemic or what have you. And because of that, there developed a very lively scholarly culture within Jacobitism, a way of both trying to understand what had happened and trying to, as it were, use history as a way to think through how to fix it or why it should or could be fixed. So it's actually, I think, not surprising that Jacobites had an interest in history. Uh, inevitably, the, the losing side or the minority side, I think, in any civil or internecine dispute uh, naturally turns to history in support of their cause. But the Jacobites did so, I think, in very, perhaps more erudite ways than are necessarily the case in those sorts of disputes. Yeah. So is this more of a, a response, like an unintended consequence of the, I'm sure this is the wrong phrase for Scottish history, but the Glorious Revolution, um, more so than it is a post-Union, 1707 Union, so the the impetus is 1688-89 rather than 1707. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, what really struck me in the process of looking at the, the material was how the union was not a significant issue for most of these people. Where it was a question of concern, it was a question of concern within larger Jacobite understandings of Hanoverian or other sort of non-Jacobite power. Uh, and indeed, I think most of the people involved were not inherently opposed to the idea of a union, provided that it was under a Jacobite monarch. And, and this goes with what Jacobite scholars have been saying for several decades now about how the romantic tendency to conflate Jacobitism with independence overlooks the fact that the Jacobite monarchs very much wanted to be the monarchs of at least a multiple monarchy, if you're not not the United Kingdom. Mm. It's inter again, it gets to sort of this parallel history going on, a parallel history of what could be described as the Scottish Enlightenment which is motivated by a different major political event than the Edinburgh, less so Glasgow, but the Edinburgh Scottish Enlightenment, which is, you know, the traditional story of that is it's a post-707 
um, development in response to what happens once your political power heads south and how do you live a good and virtuous life now? And this is a very different story. It's fascinating. Um, do they do those stories overlap at all? Does the what's going on in the northeast overlap with what's going on in Edinburgh, Glasgow? I actually think they overlap a great deal. And I think in a way you explained it very nicely there and uh, highlighted the parallel. In both cases, the way in which political and cultural power is distributed changes dramatically. And then you have a response or a growth that comes out of that. For the people I'm looking at, that's 1688. That's the shifts in political and theological power brought about by the revolution. For the moderate literati in Edinburgh, the people who are Hanoverian and Presbyterian to start with, that's the act of union because that's where their lives really change. So I think you can see these things growing along together. And what I've intentionally and conspicuously not done in this book is try to link those two narratives because I think we really need to understand the moment I'm talking about first in its own, on its own terms before we can start linking it with the better known Scottish Enlightenment. But I think if we were to do that, we would realise that much of this stuff is happening in parallel. So let's move on to the question about why, maybe if you want to drop in some of the historical things we haven't spoken about yet, uh, please do bring them in. But let's move on to the question of why what you're talking about can be fairly described as enlightened. So if I think of um, the Scottish Enlightenment, usually it's focused in, the, in uh, the two cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh. It's usually to do with an urban culture that's concerned with improvement of uh, the social space, but also the improvement of an individual who no longer has political virtue as the, uh, the way that they can live a good life. We see the growth of Newtonian science, say, in the universities and a shift towards um, you know, the Newtonian worldview, but also the application of natural philosophy, natural philosophical methods to uh, what you now describe as the human sciences, say. Um, and you'll see the transformation of moral philosophy with people like Gershom Carmichael, uh, Carmichael and then Francis Hutcheson updating itself on the basis of John Locke and Samuel Pufendorf, right? And these are, these are seem to be the, some of the enlightened developments. None of those appear, I think, in your book, so why are your guys enlightened? What's the, what, what, why, yeah, why are you using that term? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question. Uh, you raised it as well, I thought very well in your review of the book in the 17th century. So I think there are a couple of answers, uh, again, rather depending on your viewpoint. And you can certainly start from the position that clearly what I'm talking about is utterly different from what you just described. So there is no doubt, there's, there, there's, no, there's no question of this being any part of that Scottish Enlightenment. So why is it Enlightenment? Why might there be another Scottish Enlightenment? And that then I think takes us into Enlightenment historiography. So it might seem paradoxical, but I'm perhaps, when it gets right down to it, not necessarily that committed to the concept of Enlightenment at all. Uh, as I think anybody familiar with the, the field will know, uh, the idea of a monolithic enlightenment has been vigorously championed by some, equally vigorously demolished by others. And insofar as I've taken a side in this book, it's probably uh, along with the demolishers. I find Pocock's <laughs> idea that the enlightenment cannot be a singular unifiable phenomenon, a helpful way of thinking. But more generally, I think that as soon as we admit a plurality of enlightenments or a sort of muddy, amorphous set of enlightenments, which is obviously not intellectually pleasing, but perhaps a bit more like the way intellectual change 
actually happens, then we can acknowledge that at some point in the 17th to 18th centuries, there is a novel way in which the search for some form of truth value in history or in other sciences conducted. This happens across Europe, and that this is on some level in reaction to a decay or questioning of previously paradigmatic truths. And that's, I recognize, an immensely low bar for defining something, but I think it still does something to explain the zeitgeist or explain the motivations of a much wider swath of European thinkers than a sort of narrow high enlightenment definition. And it's really that and the subconcept of early enlightenment within that that I've tried to use here as a hermeneutic tool for better citing this material in a European context and for better thinking how it works. I admit also mischievously and provocatively mm -hmm. to try to get people to think about the meanings of there not just being a monolithic Scottish enlightenment, to there being other significant intellectual activity in the period. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, <laughs> Thank you for mentioning the review. I was, <laughs> I tried to annoy whoever would read that book. I'm sorry, read that review by being uh, a little bit rude about what you'd done. On the whole, in, in, in a review that's primarily very laudatory, but was trying to poke people into uh, responding a bit. I, I get the sense that I think we're on the same page with these discussions about what is and isn't enlightenment. They're kind of tedious. Or kind of they get in the way of um, recovering the past and you know interesting things that have actually happened. Would you go along with that? I would absolutely go along with that. Uh, a moment which really stuck with me in the process of writing this is I was rereading Robertson's Case for the Enlightenment as a book which in some ways was somewhat analogous to mine, although in the end they became very different books. And I was struck by the 50 page or so uh, historiographical introduction in which Robertson actually does a masterful job of summarizing the debate. But I just thought reading it, this is definitely not something I want to do. I recognize the reason why we've had to have this discussion, but it has become tedious. It's become different models increasingly out of touch with any real intellectual activity of the period being thrown at each other for very questionable reasons, I feel. I'd much rather just dispense with as much of the historiographical wars as possible, accept a fuzzy definition of enlightenment and proceed from there rather than try to come up with a precise understanding of what sub-enlightenment I'm dealing with or <laughs> what the monolithic enlightenment looks like and how my people are excluded from that and then whether they're counter-enlightenment or something else. And I, it's, it's just something that in the end I think is less productive than it might seem. You know, and I agree entirely. And my heart always sinks. Um, I thought yours, your introduction had a few interesting points that actually made it worthwhile reading. But often introductions about you know, overviews of Enlightenment historiography, yeah, they're just 20 pages of we've got to go through, we've got to name these people, summarise what they're doing, and then eke out a, a space for what I'm doing. And it's uh, it's the same, you know, you get 10 new books on the Enlightenment in the past, I've reviewed 10 new books on the Enlightenment in the past two years, and they've all basically said the same thing in the introduction and then you can get on to the real stuff you know the, the real meat of the issue and then you can you know the book starts getting interesting um i wonder whether as someone who's a i would be fair to say that you're more of a historian of 17th century scholarship do you have anything any kind of advice to you would have engaged with some of the standard scottish enlightenment scholarship mm. that doesn't deal with the history of scholarship particularly so i'm using the word scholarship too often there doesn't deal with the history of antiquarianism doesn't deal with the history of scholarship and it's interested in the sciences of man and so on um do you think 
why should we be paying attention to the history of scholarship? I think we should be paying attention to the history of scholarship <clears throat> for two, re two reasons. And really those reasons are implicit in the two topics history of scholarship is tra traditionally focused on, which are history or historiography and philology. For any early modern or enlightenment state, history, the appeals which can be made to historical tradition and the way in which history defines identity and selfhood are so fundamentally important. Obviously in somewhat different ways than in a post-traumatic nation state, but still absolutely essential. And if we neglect the way that historical understanding is constructed, we often neglect some really crucial, uh, a really crucial insight into how early modern Scots or Englishmen or French or men or whatever understood themselves. And for the philological side of things or the literary side of things, if we don't recognize the paramount importance that scholars across the spectrum and thinkers across the spectrum up to a surprisingly recent period paid to philology as the fundamental key for understanding human knowledge, and then that sort of centered in the Greek and Roman classics, but also in the texts produced in the medieval and post-medieval periods, then again, we misunderstand the intellectual worldview of the periods, and I think often with disastrous results. It's interesting because usually the highest Scottish Enlightenment, so we say uh, human Smith um, going up to maybe 1790, um, that's often seen as treated as uh, a break with the developments you've just been highlighting, right? And that someone like Smith or Hume uh, are not writing as philologists. They don't have the scholarly skills that the people that you're writing about um, do have. And it's interesting to sort of, um, I suppose the question there might be, what is the longer term consequence of the developments you've uh, discussed in the book? What's, what's the legacy? You mentioned that uh, in one sense, people writing about Scottish history now are the inheritors of the developments you've described. But could you say anything about the immediate inheritance, the immediate leg legacy in the mid to late 18th century? One of the things I thought in the book, there was sort of like a break. It kind of just died away. Does it die away with 45? Is that, is that fair? Mm, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's actually an interesting one. And I think it's something that would re reward much further study than I was able to give it. In the immediate decades after 1745, you see very little reference to these figures. There is certainly a period of hibernation, a period where because of their political and religious beliefs, they're not really acceptable people to be talking about, certainly not in complementary terms. And you see, indeed, many of the histories of Scotland, which appear in that period, at best, a, an unacknowledged use of their ideas, and perhaps at worst, actually, a lack of recognition of that entire era of scholarship. And that I think starts to change around the time things like Jacobitism stop becoming quite such a live political threat. By the 1780s, by the 1790s, when you have the establishment of the Society of Antiquaries by the Earl of Buchan, and certainly by the beginning of the 19th century, you start seeing these writers picked up again, gingerly, but with increasing frequency by that generation of historians and that generation of antiquaries and philologists. And from there, via that early to mid 19th century period, you see a pretty direct transmission of their ideas into modern scholarship. Interesting. I, there's, I would like to go back to 
uh, your tenth and final chapter. One of the great virtues of this book is that you use a variety of historical sources. I mean, I'm, my background is um, I would do close textual readings combined with publishing history, and that's about as far as I go. But what's um, lovely about your book is a combination of not just those two, but also historical geography. There's some architectural history in there. And then in your tenth chapter, there's a, a chunk of um, reception history looking at um, uh, subscriber lists. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what you were doing in that chapter and how it might fit into a sort of a more fully rounded sort of intellectual history of the Scottish Enlightenment? Absolutely. That chapter grew out of a fear that nobody other than fellow scholars were reading the books I was writing about, which I think is almost <laughs> to worry about when we read intellectually dense text from the past. And I realized that I was in a position to be able to test that by looking to some extent at subscription lists, which exist for many of these works. And many of these works are published by subscription because of the, the dicey financial prospect of, you, if you're a printer, of printing some large scholarly folio only to have it not sell. So they tend to be published by subscription. Uh, so a certain sum of money advanced in advance, the rest on delivery of the manuscript by 50 or 100 or 200 individuals. Now, subscription doesn't necessarily prove an individual read a book by any means, but it does at least suggest they cared enough about it to make an often fairly substantial financial investment in it. And I took the subscription list for a little under 20 volumes from the period that fell within the remit of my project. I did my best to crunch the numbers and look at the data from several perspectives. What were the occupations of the individuals subscribing? Where did they subscribe? Did they subscribe to more than one book? If so, how many? Were there patterns we could identify in the way in which these books were being financed and thus presumably also read across Scotland? And what I found, somewhat to my surprise, was that this scholarship was being very much exported out of the Northeast. It had an impact across Scotland in a much wider range of classes than I'd expected, but nonetheless, its principal target, about 40% of subscribers were that same landed gentry class that I'd identified as crucial at the start of the project. It's really interesting. I sort of, um, it's inspired me to have a go at that sort of thing, though I think I need to do a bit of training in, in statistics. Um, this has been great. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you would like to mention? Um, <clears throat> I don't think so, actually. I think that's that's been, uh, I hope, a uh, really good summary and introduction to the book. Yeah, it's fascinating to, to learn about how Scottish historical uh, scholarship is really transformed, right? You're talking about the transformation of uh, Scottish historical writing, but also its centrality to a lot of uh, Scottish intellectual uh, culture. It's a really, really fascinating book. Um, what are you working on next? Or is there anything that you would like to plug? You seem to have your finger in a variety of pies that you might want to advertise here. Yes, no, I, I, well, I'm very bad at saying no when I start former projects than I should. Uh, I suppose the, the big thing I'm working on next is in some ways an organic development out of this project. And that's studying the production of the modern printed sources for Scottish history. So I'm thinking here, things like the Bannatyne, Maitland, Spalding records text series that all came out mostly in the first half of the 19th century and which we use very uncritically now, I think. Uh, but I'm trying to get a better sense of what was actually the cultural and intellectual milieu that created them. Why were some texts privileged over others? What were the mechanisms by which this 
actually remarkable spate of publishing that saw three or four hundred volumes of these obscure historical texts being printed in the course of 20 or 30 years. How did that come about? And what then are the longer term implications for how it shaped Scottish historical research subsequently? Oh, that sounds great. Um, well, we'll hope to have you on again uh, when that, the fruits of that are published. So Dr. Kelsey Jackson-Williams, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, Robin. It's been a pleasure being here. This has been Robin Mills for the Talking Intellectual History Podcast. I hope you'll join us again soon. Bye-bye.